Welcome to another episode of the Africa podcast. Today on the series, we have Fadi Vukaram, who is a Lebanese photographer um, and is most widely known uh, for all of his work lately on Instagram and social media discussing linguistics. But before that, Fadi spent time as a photographer and his photos have been published in media sources such as the CNN, Foreign Policy Magazine, BBC, and the New York Times. It is really fun to have you on, Fadi. I can't wait to talk to you about the varied parts of your career and what you've been working on these days. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's funny. So first of all, anyone who's looking at the screen sees that first photo that we had on. And there's like a physical transformation, but there's also like a career transformation. Um, Can you tell me who this guy was versus <laughs> this guy? Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're both two versions that don't really reflect who I am now. And I'll explain that yeah. for a bit. But the first photo where I'm sitting and I have no beard, that's me sitting in my camper van. So that was during my first trip touring the United States. I did that for six months and then did that for another six months where I was photographing, but I, were vis- I was visiting all the towns called Lebanon, which there's like over 45 of them in the U.S. And photographing on the second trip did the same thing, but th- that time I was planting cedar trees. So that was a career break that I took for three years between my two versions of my corporate job, which have, which are not related to photography, neither are they related to languages. So the second picture you showed is me talking about languages and all that. That happened, I would say, maybe not accidentally, but it wasn't anything planned. I had never spoken about languages or linguistics before, but as it happened during the lockdown, so I live in Dublin, we it was lasted about maybe 18 months where we weren't going out much. So I was in my apartment most of the time. So I thought maybe I could try talking about languages, a subject I'm interested in and I've never talked about. So that that's about it. But as far as yeah. what I do in life, it's again, also completely different. I work in tax transparency laws. That's my corporate job. So three different versions. Yeah. Yeah. But where did you grow up? Like help us fill in the gaps. You didn't grow up in any version of Lebanon in the US. You grew up in in Lebanon yes. in Beirut or yeah. where did you grow up? Yeah, yeah. I I was born and raised in the actual Lebanon, so in a suburb of Beirut. I didn't visit a foreign country until I was in my 20s probably, when I went to Dubai in my 22 or 23. Um but yeah, I was born and raised in Lebanon, you know, got my degree there. I have a degree in computer engineering. And then in 2005, I left to the United States because as it happened, unfortunately, I was at the site when Prime Minister Rafi al-Hariri was assassinated. So I was hit a little bit. So I thought I need a break. Went to the US, did my graduate degree, came back to Lebanon. And then I kept going to different countries and now I am in Ireland where I've been living for the past four years. Wait, are you saying February 14th, 2005, yes. you were literally 
I was at Manara, like yeah, at Cornish. I was in Ain Lemreis in my office. Wow. So I, I mean, it wasn't anything major. It just had the glass door blow up in my face. But it was the fear of us going back to a civil war at the time, where it triggered a lot of uh, I need to get out thing, because I had spent most of my childhood in a bomb shelter. So I needed to get out. So my aunt lives in San Francisco. I had enough saved for one year of university. So it was just me getting out, not for furthering my education as much as trying to find a way to get out of the situation. And when you got there, what happened? What, like, how did your relationship with the Arab world transform? Not, not real. Like, it didn't change much as much as it gave me a little bit of distance looking at the situation in Lebanon from an, I don't want to say an outsider's, but getting a bit of more of neutrality looking at what we have back home. And uh, it wasn't easy because you gain a little bit of perspective and initially you think, well, a lot of people back home think it's kind of like what happened in Lebanon and the war and all that. The same thing gets repeated. It's like it's the war of other people on our land, right? Then you go out and you get some perspective. And to me, it's, I would say, what, 90, 95% is of our own doing. So that's my belief. I'm I'm not trying to be controversial or anything. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to language. Um, I would imagine yeah. most people who are listening to this are familiar with your social media. So. Um, walk. First of all, what is the what is your handle? Why why that name? Okay, uh, it's it's a bit accidental and it's not really interesting, but. So that Cedrus uh, K. So Cedrus is the genus of the cedar tree, and it wasn't because of Lebanon. I remember, so I was in the army in 2001, and I used to spend a lot of my time playing Counter-Strike at my friend's internet cafe, and we had to choose a handle. And I have no idea why. Maybe I had read something about the cedar tree, but I picked one. And then I became known to the people where, like, everybody calls everybody else by their handles. So I was Cedrus for a, a, a long time. So when I started opening accounts on social media, Cedrus on its own is just taken. So someone else had taken the account. So I picked Cedrus K. K is from my last name, Karam, because my last name is Bu Karam. But, you know, like the Bu is optional sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so funny how many people's identities are actually tied up in, uh, tied up with... A fateful yeah. <laughs> afternoon at some internet cafe when you're playing Counter-Strike. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Um, okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit about your um, your fascination with Arabic and when that started. Uh, this podcast is, is all about, this episode is all about um, process. And so I'm curious about the process of becoming interested in, in language and in Arabic specifically. Well, how to say, like, I, of course, I've always been interested in Arabic because that's the language I learned. But then when you go yeah. to school, you learn more on classical Arabic. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's a fascinating language. But being interested in a language often comes from mentally, in my, in my mind, comparing it to other languages you're, you know, being, uh, 
you're using or you're being exposed to. So because we're in Lebanon, you know, in school, we have to learn French and English. And you notice it's like, well, French and English have their similarities, but Arabic is a little bit different. Why? So then you start diving in. It's kind of like, oh, we have families of languages. So there's the Indo-European languages. There's the Afro-Asiatic languages. So that idea of imagining that there was once a, a link or a proto-language where everybody talked the same, and then it splintered out. So that to me is fascinating. And that Arabic is part of this branch of Semitic languages and how it functions and how it evolves. So that to me is the fascinating part about Arabic. Yeah. In these videos, when you started doing these videos online, yes. um, who who do you think you're talking to? I... That, that's a that's a really great question. I how how do I say like not all the videos are the same, right? But in the videos where I'm talking specifically, maybe about let's let's talk about the one we have on the screen for a second, just as an example. Like for the people listening who don't know what yes. uh, we're talking about, given as example of this video specifically, and who you think you're talking to in this video. Well, in this this video is a bit general to me. Is that I'm talking to anyone who's interested in languages. That's simple as that. In that we're talking about uh, the possible or the theory as to why some languages are written left to right and others right to left. So it doesn't have a specific audience to me as much as anyone who might be interested in languages and has the question in mind. So uh, how to say? So the purpose, not just the audience for me, is not to say, this is the answer. It's to say, well, you had a question. Here are some additional facts you might be interested in. And if you'd like, you can dig into it deeper. So that's always the purpose behind the videos. It's kind of like, here are some bit of additional facts. I'm not lecturing. And you can dig into it more because let's face it, at most, this is a 90 second video that I post on Instagram. There's not too much facts you can, you can put. It's just about cramming as much as possible while making it interesting and hopefully having people have the curiosity to dig out more on their own. Okay, so let's talk about the directionality, right? Yeah. I saw this video, I, I loved it. Thank you. So let's talk about, I'll ask you the question. Yes. And I want you to try to answer it. But then I, I'm also curious about the stuff that didn't get crammed into the 90 seconds. Yes. So the question is, why are some languages right to left and some languages left to right? Okay. Well, there really isn't any documented, uh, let's say, proof to say why this is that way or the other. But one theory says that initially writing started as carving, carving on a hard surface. And people mention clay. Clay is a hard service, service. Uh, and we're using a tool, which is either a chisel or a reed. And because most people are right-handed, so we have, you know, we're holding, let's say, a hammer and a, and a chisel, and, you know, we're chiseling. So the natural movement of the arms of a right-handed person, because how the arms open, you know, would be left to right. Uh, you know, so it's kind of like that. So that's that's kind of like part of the reason. But then at some point we evolved where we're we're writing with ink. And if you do that with ink, there's the possibility of us smidging the surface with our hand. 
So it switched. And so that went, you know, right to left for some people, left to right for, for others. But again, these are just theories, and it explains some languages, but it doesn't explain other languages. Because I mentioned, for example, that uh, the Greeks at some point, the Etruscans, the Phoenicians, and then uh, in South Arabian uh, languages, they used one where it goes left to right, it drops to the second line, it switch, go left to right. So that's one that's called bustrofedon, as in as the ox plows. So there wasn't a set rule for everybody. And like with the photo that you're showing, a lot of the uh, cultures carved top to bottom and then went from right to left. Yeah. Okay, so I, when you when you told me about as the ox plows, yes. in my mind, when you said that, I said, okay, well, we're not talking about the same thing. I mean, language, the function of language, the written language back then, functionally is different than it is now. Yes. And for then, back then, it sounds to me more like a design than it does a, a written script in the way that we think of a written script. Like, it sounds like, like, almost like if you're looking at like some Ikea manual, yeah, right? And Or Ikea is not good because they don't use any language. But you're, you're looking at some like museum, museum sort of way, wayfinding language. And you see that somebody thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to write it like this and and do something interesting this way and do something interesting this way. And we're going to have all of our typography on the wall a specific way. It sounds a lot more like that because it's not like people are writing their grocery lists like that, were they? Well, th th that's the thing. So there are two sources of it. It's kind of, um, we, it might, it might be difficult to admit, but a big reason for the development of language is trade. That's it as in people are buying and selling and they're, you know, noting stuff and doing inventory. So that there's that. Yeah. But there's also the memor memorializing, as in this is a place where this person lived and died and stuff like that. The design comes in because initially whatever uh, carvings or, how to say, markings on were artistic in nature, were depicting nature, but then we're talking about putting symbols to describe daily lives, and that evolved into writing. So there is this artistic part, but there's also a big part of it is the practicality of it. So Bustrofedon, for example, it to our modernize, it might look like a cool design. But from a practicality point of view, it's just someone with a chisel going like that and thinking, why do I have to go back to the, to the beginning of the line since I'm here? You know, so they go like that. Yeah. So it's a combination of both practicality and, of course, there's no denying the, I'm saying artistic, but let's say design part of it all. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, l let me think about, okay, let's move on. Okay, let's move on from the sort yeah. of directionality. Most of your videos are about Arabic. Have sort of Arabic at the center. Is that, would you describe that? Would you say that being as true? Uh, as of recent, yes, but I would say if I'm going to look at the totality of my videos, I'd say maybe 50 to 60% have Arabic, but, mm -hmm. but yes, I have to include Arabic. I have to, yeah. not because someone is obliging me, or like it's making me, it's because uh, 
linguistics and Arabic and the etymology in Arabic is something that is not widely accessible to people the way it is for other languages. If you think of, you know, when you're talking about etymologies, dictionaries, so the origin of words in certain languages, there are countless ones for uh, English, French, all the Indo-European languages. We don't have one for Arabic. The one project that is going on about etymology of work, uh, Arabic words is at the University of Oslo in Norway. So this field feels like it's it needs to move on. And not that I'm participating in having it move on, but I'm just hoping that there is more interest in it so that people could look at saying like, oh, this is the beauty of Arabic. Look at the words we had. But let's keep in mind that a lot of Arabic words are not really Arabic. They don't come from Arabic, and that's okay. This whole, uh, how to say, wanting our language to be pure, I understand it, but at the same time, no language is pure. There is no such thing. Yeah. Yeah, I feel, I mean, for me, I always think that there's like an, uh, yeah, and there's an obsession with purity. Oh, yeah. And a, an obsession with idea of, supremacy yes. and beauty, yeah. um, which I, I think you do a really good job of disarming that, Thank you. that instinct. Um, but let's talk about some of them. Yeah. Uh, before the call, I told you, you know, let's pick some topics worth, yeah. uh, worth discussing. So walk me through academia. Yes. I mean, uh, academia is, you know, the, the fruit, which, you know, I, I love that fruit. That word always sounded a little bit off to me in that of course, it's not Arabic, but it has that word dinye in the end, which is Arabic. So I wanted to look into it, and then it turned out that it's just a Turkish word. It's a Turkish word because we have to uh, realize that through the time, the centuries of Ottoman rule, we have a lot of Turkish words that entered into Arabic. So uh, in Turkish, that word was from yeni dunya, which means new world. Why did they call it that? Because they had believed that it comes from the Americas, even though they got it from uh, Malta directly. So that's why they call it also like Maltese Blum. But Yeni Dunya came into Arabic and suddenly it transformed into either Ekidinya in Lebanon, for example, or Eskidinya, uh, which is what they would call it in places like in Palestine, for example. But then Eskidinya means old world. So how is it possible that new world in Turkish and uh, old world in Arabic? But then what had happened is that because Turkish now is written in the Latin alphabet, but back in the Ottoman days, they wrote in an Arabic alphabet. So that yeni, so it's really nye, kind of like this nye sound. The, the Ottomans wrote it with a cap that has a three dots on it. That's how mm. they... Yeah, the Ottomans used an augmented Arabic alphabet. So it's kind of like ours, but not the same. So if someone who does not know Turkish is reading it, he would read it as Yekidinya, not Yenidinya. And Yeki would easily have become Ekidinya. And through folk etymology, as in trying to change a bit of the word to fit a certain idea of what it should be, it would have become from Yekidinya to Eskidinya, meaning old world. But in the end, it all goes back to, it's a Turkish word that means new world. Does this fruit exist um, in other parts of the Arab world? Uh, other than Lebanon, you mean? Other than sort of like 
dominant uh, Ottoman dominated sections of the Arab world. Like, can you find this in Tunisia? Oh yeah, and oh yeah, and is it a different word? Uh, yes. So they call it, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, busar, and I don't have an answer as to why it's called busar, but in w w w through the process of posting these videos. I have realized that the language that they have in the Maghrib, so we're talking Tunisia, the country of Maghrib and Algeria, their words are almost always completely different than from what we have in the Levant, you know? Yeah. Through uh, different, uh, how, how to say, the influence of other languages. So, for example, the influence of the Tamazigh languages, the Berber languages on them. Whereas in the Levant, you have the influence of the Syriac uh, and Aramaic languages. So that changes a lot. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so they do have a word, but it's not always related to the Turkish part. Do you know the word for Do you know the name in English for this fruit? Yeah, it's called the loquat, which, oh. which, which comes from Chinese. Oh. Yes. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that fruit, by the way, I mentioned that I was in the U.S. So when I lived in San Francisco, that was an ornament, ornamental tree, like you'd find it on the street, but no one would eat it. Except that during April, May, there would always be a race between the Chinese folks who lived there and people from the Levant and the Mediterranean to pick out the fruits of the, of the trees on the street. So it was interesting. Just because that's the one moment where yeah. they're, uh, yeah. they're right? Yeah, like that two weeks. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, they have a short period. So that's so funny. Um, so that journey that you just went on, right? Yeah. How are you finding all this information? Oh, and when, how do you deal with it when you find conflicting information? Well, uh, often to, okay. So to the process of it, how to say it? My first step, and I have to explain why, is always, always Wikipedia. People think kind of like under, or let's say Wikipedia is bad. It's like, yeah, if you think of Wikipedia as the source of information, that's not good. If you think of Wikipedia as to the portal for other sources of information that are documented, as far as books, as far as peer-reviewed linguistics papers, this, it's an amazing tool. So for me, that's the start. I also have a lot of uh, etymology dictionaries, you know, behind me, but it would always be multiple sources in multiple languages. So I would search in Arabic, in English, in French when I can. Uh, I can decipher Greek and uh, what was that, Aramaic. So that's the, the ones I'm looking for. And I do have a really interesting uh, dictionary, which is about Aramaic loanwords in Arabic. So that that would be always oh, cool. uh, that would always be my reference. So, Fadi, could I could I put you on the spot? Yes. <laughs> Can you go get these books? Okay. Go. Well, the physical book. Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the one. That's the etymology dictionary. What is an etymology dictionary? Okay, an etymology dictionary means it's not about looking for the meaning of a word, but rather the origin of the word, as to where, in which language did it start. 
So how did yeah. it move from one language to the other to the other so that we got to it where it's at its current state? Right? Mm, yeah. Uh, I want to give an example. So if, if we had an etymology dictionary for Arabic and we would look at um, akidine... Like, let's, let's use the word admiral. Yes. Let's use the word admiral. Because I heard that admiral comes from Arabic at one point. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm putting I'm putting Fadi to work. <laughs> Admiral. Okay. Yeah, what's this? Say? Yeah, you're right. It is Arabic. One second. Okay, so, yeah, walk us through it. Uh okay, I'll read the whole entry, right? So yeah. Admiral, commander of a fleet of ships. 1297, Amiral borrowed from Old French, traditionally set to come, see, they say set to come, from Arabic, Amir Al, so prince of or chief uh, chief of the, mm. appearing in such titles as Amir Al-Bahr, chief of the sea, and misinterpreted by Christian writers to be a word with the ending Al, like Amir Al. However, later scholars have suggested that the source in Arabic is more likely through cultural contact to be Amir Ar-Rahl, chief of transport, referring to the fleet play, plying between North Africa and Andalusia. Oh, okay, cool. So how would you take that? Like, what is the next step that you would take for that word? Oh, what is the next? Oh, that's the, that's the more fun part to me. Do you want me to keep that or? Yeah, no, 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 that's it. That's it for that book. Okay. What's the next part? Okay, the next part for me is Two, two, two uh, sources, let's say. I would go on Google Books and archive.org. Why? Yeah. Because I can find books dating back to the 16th and 17th century, sometimes older, that would be scanned, that have the references to see how they were used at the time. That has been invaluable in trying to find dictionaries and yeah. sources that are that old. Do you ever use the, like, the Ngram viewer? Uh, well, the, the Ngram viewer doesn't date back. Well, I haven't been able to find anything that dates back, let's say, to 16th or 15th century yeah. like that. That's so cool, though. Yeah, it is. Okay. Okay, so keep going. So you go on Archive, you go on Google Books, yes. you find this stuff. Yeah. And um, let's say it, I mean, the. are you interested in... Um, oh, where does the word Amir come from? And where does the word Rahle come from? Like, why doesn't it keep on going deeper? Well, you, you can go deeper. But at some point, again, like I mentioned, I have to put it in 90 seconds. Yeah. And that part is kind of like what takes the most time. But then it's kind of like, okay, how do I make it into something smooth that people would be interested in? Yeah. So it's trying to yeah. make kind of like a, a, a plot line you know, a, a story of it just to make it interesting. So sometimes I do go back to it more, but in the end, it's kind of like how specialized the audience would be and all that, so. Yeah. Okay, let's do a couple of these really quickly. Yes. Um, some of the other fruit. So walk us through this one. Kharma, yes. Uh, so the word, so we're talking about the persimmon, right? So the persimmon, uh, this all goes back to a single... Uh, a genus of a tree, which is it's called the Ospiros in, in Greek, which technically means wheat of Zeus, but it really means like fruit of the god because people thought it was tasted amazing. Not to me, but to some. Anyway, so there's 
the name in Arabic uh, comes from the Persian word or combination of words, kharmalu. Kharma means date, as in like the fruit of the date tree. And then alu, mm -hmm. that means plum, because the taste of it reminded people of uh, a combination of a date and plum. And the word date plum in English does exist for that. At the same time, some people call it kaki. So where does that come from? That comes from the Japanese version of the three, diospiros kaki. Uh, so that's the Japanese word. And the English word persimmon, that comes from an Al Algonquin Native American language due to the species they have. And same for the French word, plaquemine. They all come from that one. The one thing I do not know is that when I lived in the Ba'a, Bika, for a short period, I know that some people call that kharma. Uh, sorry, a manga. I have no idea why. Like, why do we call that manga? But if it makes any difference, some people in Halab, in Aleppo, in Syria, they would call it manga halabi. So Aleppo mango. Yeah. You know, it's... Are you interested in sort of the etymology of, or sort of like living and emerging etymology too? Like, because, I mean, there are, you know, um, there are new words that sort of emerge yes. and get added to the Arabic language. Yes. How are these tracked? Well, that, yeah. See, how to say, when, we, when you're saying Arabic, are you talking about written Arabic or spoken Arabic? Because spoken. spoken Arabic, unfortunately, it's not tracked that much. Why? Because there is this conception or belief among many in the Arab world that for some reason the spoken dialects are inferior to the written dialect. And as such, it's kind of like, yeah, it's cool, but it's, there's no way to document. How are you going to document something that isn't easy to write? Because our spoken dialect isn't easily written. I'm very interested in the subject, but it's really, really hard to find documented resources other than, you know, folk tales, things that are not related, like not really true. Yeah. Um, okay, let's keep on going. Yes. What about this one? Oh, I, I love this one. So artichoke is the uh, artichoke. It's what we call it in Lebanon. I don't know what, what it's called in a lot of other countries, but in Egypt, for example, they call it kharshuf, which is the original Arabic word. And it's from Andalusian Arabic. So back in the days when the Arabs were in Andalusia, they passed the word to um, Spanish, Middle Spanish at the time. So al-kharshufa, one head of artichoke, became al-karchofa. Al-karchofa made its way to northern Italy, becoming artichoco, artichoco. And then when it came to us, this is the process of folk etymology. It's kind of like, I take a word, artichoco, and how do I adopt it into my own language? It's like, yeah, artichoco is artichauke, because ardi, it grows in the ground, and shauke, because it has thorns. Even though it has, that has no truth whatsoever to it. That, not that it doesn't have any truth makes it less important. It's all about the process of how we adopt the word. So this is yeah. an Arabic word, word going to other languages and coming back to us, which is a process called reborrowing in linguistics. And it's just fascinating. You said something, you said that was the original Arabic word. Yeah. Well, that, that seems like a very loaded sentence. I know. What, what, do, what does that actually even mean? Okay. See, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, you know, how we think that 
classical Arabic is better than spoken Arabic. And I did, just did yeah. that because, you know, the bias doesn't go away because we grew up with that. So when I yeah. say the original Arabic word, as in the classical Arabic word, even though it comes from, like, it wasn't invented in Arabic. It's also a loan word from Persian eventually. But what I mean yeah. is that it's written, it's in writing, as in it's documented, right? So yeah. that's the word that, where it started from. Yeah. Okay. Because as far as I'm concerned, artichokes are older than Arab. Yes, yes, yes. I know, 100%. <laughs> okay, let's, um, let's keep going. So this idea of, you know, you, male, female, um, you did a really good video about this. Um, tell us a little bit about this, um, where this idea came from and how you put this together. Yes. So like with Ardishauke coming from, you know, our Artichoko, that's the fo folk etymology. So because you would not be familiar with the rules of all the languages, you change them to fit your own. So in English, when we say male, female, often, or let's say people might think that, well, of course, these are from the same root because female and male. But in, in reality, it has nothing to do with it. So male comes from French mal, and female comes from also French femelle. But femelle and mal are not related. But English speakers likely not knowing that L, this L at the end, is the diminutive in French, change it into female because like male and female, they're the same. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of the same. Uh, the other example I gave for was octopi. So a lot of times you see uh, words ending in U.S. in English. People assume it's uh, Latin, right? So radius, radii, locus, loci. They put the plural as I. So octopus, octopi, but that's not the truth. Octopus is a Greek word. So it, it's plural in Greek should have been uh, octopodes, or I don't know how to pronounce it right. So not yeah. octopi. So this is what I mean by folk etymology. We change the word when we adopt it into a language, not knowing the rules of the other language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk a little, uh, a few more of them, and then I want to get a sense of what you're working on okay. um, these days. So maybe we'll do... Uh, but, uh, yeah. But, um, so the word for oranges in Arabic and other languages to me is fascinating because it describes how word get adopted based on the trade routes, you know, how, how they sell. So the word orange in English, that comes from Arabic. Uh, I mean, not originally Arabic, but the Arabs introduced that fruit to the Western world. And it came from the word narinj, which originally came from Persian, from Indian, etc. So they adopted it from us. You know, that's what they call it. So why didn't we call narinj, even though that word exists? It's because narinj is for the bitter orange, right? The sweet orange, we, came, we got it from the Portuguese through China. So our word for the, for the orange, Portugal in classical Arabic, Comes, it's just from the country of Portugal, because that's the country where we got it from. And changing Portugal to Berdan, that happens a lot in, you know, when we adopt a word and sometimes it changes one letter, the L and the N. For example, a chain that you wear around your neck in Arabic, it's silsila. But then in spoken Arabic for us, it's sinsli, right? So you change mm -hmm. the L and the N. 
But yeah, so the idea is that we name a fruit or any product after the country that we got it from. It's fascinating because it's not just about language. It talks about the history of the trade that happens between countries. Going yeah. into the animal, the turkey animal on its own would take like two hours because seeing what it, different names are and where it came from. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> it's funny because, yeah. At, well, are there examples of uh, words that have just died completely that you've come across um, that have just gone completely out of fashion and been rebranded entirely in Arabic? I, I'm trying... I can't I not I can't think of anything right now off the top of my head. Cuz like but and right? Yeah. Like I don't remember the last time I've ever heard anyone say that we still get oranges from Portugal or even sort of associating it, right? Yes. And I wonder if at some point they just sort of rebra get rebranded entirely um because the name isn't useful anymore. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think of examples like that, but mm. uh, but just maybe because like I mentioned Turkey, I, I'm not sure if that's what you mean. But for example, you know, yeah. in, in Lebanon we call it sometimes Hapshi, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the old name for Ethiopia, but Ethiopia doesn't call itself anymore that in Arabic. It's Ethiopia. So wait, so when I when I go and order uh, Saj Habash, I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I meant I'm referencing Ethiopia, really. Yeah, because the word hapshe that means the bird we all got it from Ethiopia. That's that's how because al habasha that was the original Arabic name for Ethiopia, and that's where we got it from. So the same way why we say the turkey bird is that the English got it from Turkey, so they call it turkey. You know, uh, the Egyptians used to get it from the Greeks. So they call it the Krumi. So Rum is reference to the Byzantine Greeks at the time. We we don't use the word Rum anymore for like in the modern country of Greece. Neither do we for Hapshi. But yeah. How interesting. Um, I want to talk about your relationship with Arabic um, over the course of this sort of like last two years of becoming, yeah. um, you know, known for this stuff. Yeah. Um, have, how has your relationship to the language changed? Uh, there's a bittersweet, I would say. Here, here's, let me explain what that means. So I love Arabic. I love reading Arabic. But the bittersweetness part is that now I'm reading, you know, old poetry from uh, the Jahiliya part, so the pre-Islamic dates. And as I'm reading them, it's like, my God, this is so beautiful. And I remember being in high school thinking, these are awful because they are explained to us in a not not in a very good way, in that our relationship with the classical Arabic being taught to us in school, I think, should change a little bit. They should give us more modern texts rather than just, you know, the old texts. Not because that they're not beautiful, but because it takes time for us to appreciate them, and I'm not sure teenagers are the best demographic to appreciate this kind of thing. Okay. Well, that leads me to the most natural podcasty question ever. Okay. What text should they be reading, Fadi? Uh, what text should... Well, how to say? 
when we're talking about poetry, or we should be teaching 20th century a lot more. It's kind of like now we're starting more and more to appreciate Nizar Qabbani as adults. But we have to think that in school, Nizar Qabbani would be, it's kind of like, yeah, that's the person who writes poetry without rhymes. So, mm-hmm. like, we have to let go of the rigidity of Ash'ar al-Amudi just because it's kind of like, this is how it used to happen. People need to be reading, uh, you know, a lot more Hassan uh, Abdul uh, Quddus from Egypt. It's, we could be reading Ahlam Mustaghanmi, more Amin al-Rihani from, like, we do get exposed to them a little bit, like, the, the curriculum changed since I left school. But back in the time, we used to just get a little bit of I wish it did. I think oh. it's still the <laughs> Like, we, we, we can't be just reading, you know, uh, Abu al-Ala al-Ma'arri and uh, al-Zahiz and Ibn Khaldun. It's like, we, our curriculum cannot stop at the 12th century. Like, this is sad. There's like eight, nine centuries of Arabic where it developed that would make us love Arabic a lot more than this old te- these old texts. Not that they're not beautiful, but that they should be like just one part of a bigger, you know, program. Yeah. Um, the first question I asked you was, who do you think you're talking to? Yes. Um, and I don't think you actually answered it. And okay. now I'm e- even more curious. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I wonder if you think you are talking to a Western audience um, and having them love Arabic and see the beauty of Arabic? Um, or do you feel like you're sort of talking to a global audience and having them love language? Well, to be honest, it's a combination of a lot of things because I do my videos in English, right? Uh, so I have to assume that a big part of my audience is non-Arabic speaker. You know, even if they do speak English, they don't speak Arabic. So part of it is Yes, I would like these folks who do not speak Arabic to get exposed to this language. But at the same time, all the Arabic speakers, I would like them to listen to uh, see different perspectives of approaching the language. But again, it's kind of like not all the videos have the same audiences in, in, my, in my mind. Eventually they might be, but in my mind, who am I talking to? I just want to make it to someone, you know, who is has any interest in language as opening the checking this video and being able to follow me to the end. I know I'm probably really not following uh, answering the question, your question, yeah. but that in, in all honesty, that's who I'm thinking of when, you know, when I'm doing the video. So someone yeah. who doesn't have uh, the necessary linguistic education to be able to follow. Yeah. You know, I was like thinking about your your initial project about the you know different Lebanons yes. around around the um, yeah. around the U.S. Okay, I'm going to admit something. Yes. Okay, and I'll put my I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable. Yeah. I remember when I first heard about that project. Yeah. Because it kind of went viral. Yeah. And I remember thinking, and no shuhaido. Yeah. <laughs> what is there to learn? Okay. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, and it like. Do we need this? Does the world need this? Yeah. But speaking to you now, yeah. I I realize that there's like your approach to process and your approach to like looking at how we got here is very revelatory. So what did you learn in that entire 
series? And did you learn what you thought you were going to learn? You mean when I traveled to the U.S.? And yeah, because I feel like you're doing the exact same thing now. You're do I feel like you are basically following a oh. kind of a silly hunch. Ah, okay. Well, and you're like, all right, I want to figure out how we got here. Well, there there is a bit of a small ulterior motive to that in the back of my mind, but I'll get to that. So initially, yeah. when I went on my trip, yeah, uh, the the purpose was just, oh, this is fascinating to me. I want to know why blah blah blah. They're called Lebanon that. But remember that I went in with a camera. So in my mind, I thought that this is a cool photographic project, but that completely changed. Why? Because I went in, started a month before the elections in 2016 when it was Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And there was a sociological element that developed that I wasn't thinking of, just like, how do people interact with each other? And how do they interact with me as an outsider and as someone from the Middle East? You know, so the purpose isn't trying to preach anything. That's not the idea. But mm -hmm. back to my original part where I said, I grew up in Lebanon, I grew up in the Civil War. So the idea of conflict between people, it's not something that I think of as much as it's part of my existence. That's how I grew up. So the idea yeah. of wanting to contributing even a little bit so to people understanding each other a little bit more to diminish this potential for conflict, I, I love that. that. I love this idea. Even if it's not at the forefront, it's not kind of like, here's what we should do. But, so this is what I'm saying I'm not preaching, and that by explaining to people some of the similarities we might have as people, as attitudes, as languages, they might be curious a little bit more as to things that unite us more than things that divide us. But again, yeah. I cannot be preachy because preaching is cheap. And it's, it's I, again, when I said it's an ulterior motive, but in a little bit, it's not that I'm pushing an agenda or anything. It's kind of like, here is what you have. And then, you know, you can believe whatever you want in the end. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I, like, I see how, how in shape and in form and intention, how close, how close they are now. It's, I had no <laughs> idea. And now speaking to you, I'm like, oh, this is just the remix. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it never started this way. But it became this way. And it, like, I, it only came late to me. It's kind of like when you said, oh, this is a remix. It's like, in my mind, that was reason. It's like, oh, this is a remix, you know? But you put it much nicer. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is totally, uh, totally a remix. Uh, okay, okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the um, or actually, before we talk about some of them, let's talk about Superman. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much there is to talk about, but I used to, collect so many of them when I was a kid, right? So mm -hmm. the idea that having Superman read in Arabic to have Arabic names, it was amazing, you know? It's got yeah. it's kinda like Superman, it's Clark Kent, but for us it'll always be Nabil Fauzi, you know? It's kind of and you know, all these Arabized localized names, let's say, the which they are very Lebanese, by the way. Why? Yeah. It's because if you I don't know if you remember, like the early 90s, there was these uh, TV shows on TV in Lebanon, Al-Asifa Tahub Maratain and all that. And they were notorious for using languages, uh, sorry, using names that 
do not reflect any hint of someone's religion. So yeah, they would do it on, on purpose. So in Superman, they, you know, they would do that as well. It's kind of like, let's choose these, these names. But um, as far as localization of characters to the Arab world, I, I do love the idea because no one says that we need to adopt a character as is. And part of me says, I wish they would still do that because they don't. But at the same time, we don't live in the 80s and 90s anymore because, you know, you're reading something, but you're also looking it up on the internet and you'll see that it has a different name in other languages. So on the one side, you know, having this global world is cool, but at the other side, it's removing a lot of the individual peculiarities to the languages for these global characters. Yeah. So this episode is going to come out um, in in May, but okay. if anyone didn't uh, go back and listen to the episode that we just released with Georges Khoury, uh, the comic book artist, Jad, that's his pen name, he was the guy behind those, uh, those uh, future TV animations and um, all those cartoons. Him and his team were behind it in the early 90s. I, I used to watch that. I used to love it. Yeah. So yeah. anyone who wants to go listen to it, the episode is called The History of Arabic Comics. Um, and he talks about Superman and all that stuff. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about what you're working on now, and then we'll do the quick Q&A and we'll wrap up. Okay. Uh, what, what I'm working on now as far as... Yeah, what are some... Give us a preview of some of the future episodes. Well, okay. The, one of the episodes, many episodes I'm working on, uh, is not related to language, to be honest. It's... Uh, trying to explain without being controversial in any way, shape, or form about this whole, uh, well, controversy going on on Cleopatra on Netflix. It mm -hmm. is the idea, it's not about that they hired someone who is uh, black for the role or that it is a documentary, but it's the accompanying idea in some places in the U.S. that the people in Egypt right now are not related to the ancient Egyptians. Uh, I'm talking DNA and all that. And there's a study that was done in 2017 on uh, DNA studies on all mummies on a period of 1,800 years, I think these mummies from, where they did the, showed the continuation that the DNA is actually like, it's the same people. And if anything, there's now more sub-Saharan contribution, etc. So this part I will want to show, it's kind of like how it looks you know, just to explain to people, you know, like what they should read in order to get to know more about the, the subject, not just, you know, hearing pundits and opinions, because in the end, this get boring. Uh, yeah. As, as far as uh, videos on languages, I'm, I, I don't know if it's, I, I can't, I can't think of right now. I'll, 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 I'll give you one in a couple of seconds. Sorry, I'm blanking. No, it's okay. I was, you know, I was half expecting you to be like, you know what? I'm done with language. I'm no, over no. it. Oh, oh, okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. I, I'm, I want to do one on uh, metathesis. Uh, metathesis is um, the process of switching letters in, uh, in words uh, for no apparent reason other than to make it easier to pronounce, which, you know, like, okay. uh, uh, you know, like the word for spoon in Arabic, in classical, uh, classical Arabic, 
is uh, mil'aqa, right? But then in spoken Arabic in some dialects, it's become ma'la. You switch the uh, the l and the and the ain, you know, stuff like that. So that happens mm. a lot, and in all languages. So I want to talk about that. Another video I'm doing on whistled languages. So this is a fascinating one because in all continents, for no reason whatsoever, without contact, they have what's called a whistled language, where people whistle and they communicate with sentences through this whistling. Yeah. So that. I have a question for you. Yes. At any point in human history, has a single language dominated the globe as much as... I mean, English or Mandarin or Hindi, I, I don't know what, or Spanish. Have there ever, what is like the highest percentage of humans on earth that have ever spoken one single language? Well, that, that's a complex. In I my, don't expect you to have the answer. Well, in my mind <laughs> now it's English because it's the widest, but why don't we know? It's kind of like, we can say about what was happening until 1492 when they went to see the U.S., the, you know, the New World. What, why am I saying that? Because there, were, there are native languages in North and South America that we yeah. wouldn't know necessarily the history of, of which dominated for how long. So the Old World, so anything centered around the Mediterranean, is a lot more documented than anything else. You know? Yeah. So Greek was for a while, then Latin, then Arabic. So, Yeah. I guess the reason why I'm asking is because let's let's uh, operate under the the premise that English, as a percentage, let's say let's say like forty percent of the Earth speaks English. Yes. Let's say that that's true. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but if that's the highest that it's ever been in the history of humanity, that mm -hmm. one language was spoken this widely, and it's just like monotonically increased. Over yes. time, yes. Can is there like uh, are there is anyone predicting that it will get to the point where we'll end up having essentially two, three, four languages, and that's it? The same way, I mean, if you think about like if you think about coding, for example, right? Since you're yeah. a software engineer, at, at some point there becomes like dominant domination of certain languages and frameworks, and okay, they sort of completely dominate dominate until they're there is some shift and a disruption and something else completely takes over. Well, uh, how, how to say, in here, it's kind of like when we say English is a dominating language as language of communication between people of different languages. So mm. even if, if English becomes the most spoken language in the world with 70 or 80% right now, it's still that it is the second language for most people the, rather than the first yeah. language. And I would hope that it would stay that way because we don't want to say, like, I, I don't see the risk of English becoming the dominant language uh, having a negative effect on people's native languages. That happens at a much more local level than at a, let's say, global level. And by that, I mean, when people think of Italian, for example, it's like, yeah, Italian is one language. It's like, yeah, but you have to remember that there's a million other dialects, well, dozens of other dialects in Italy that are not the standard Italian. And these are the ones that are dying off because Italian is taking over. Same in France, you know. Uh, so that happens mm -hmm. all, all over. 
So it's not the issue of the global language, but rather in a single country, let's say, and how it's being treated, this minority language, and can it be saved or not? Yeah. Um, okay, let's do the quick Q&A, and I'm going to ask you, just because we're running out of time, I'm going to ask okay. you, uh, what are you reading and watching these days? Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm re-watching Breaking Bad. That's not something... <laughs> Just that, but what I'm what I'm reading, <laughs> just because I missed the fifth season, so I want to finish it. So I'm rewatching it from the start, and there's not a lot of cool stuff on TV these days for me. Uh, what I'm reading, I'm reading a French book called Oni Soi Qui Mal Pense, which is a linguistics book about the subtitle of it is the love story between French and English, because the majority of English has a Romance language and Latin uh, words, even though English is a Germanic language. So it's a book about French and English and how they, uh, you know, the intermarriage between them. Uh, so I love this book. It's by Amazing. a French linguist uh, called Henriette Voltaire. Cool. Um, who do you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Uh, again, like it's not uh, <laughs> a groundbreaking answer, but for me, it's uh, uh, Champollion, the guy who worked on the Rosetta Stone. To me, that's kind of like just the idea of having this massive stone with three texts and trying to decipher them, like I would give anything to have been part of that, to just look at them, like not to participate, because it feels like a great puzzle that solved a lot as far as going forward and understanding other languages and hieroglyphics. What do people most misunderstand about your work? Uh, that they might think I'm a professional linguist, or that they, I, that I'm aiming to teach linguistics, and that's not my thing at all. It's just for me, I'm trying to evoke a little bit more curiosity in languages and how people, you know, try to understand them. So just having, because yeah. I was a teacher for a long time, so I love the whole idea of getting a complex subject and funneling it down to 90 seconds of cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. What did you teach? Uh, I taught math and physics for a long time, but then in 2018, I taught photojournalism at LAU. So, like, a bit varied. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And lastly, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? That That's the easy one for me. That's uh, It's uh, Dr. Ahmed Al-Jallad. So he's a linguist who works from the U.S. on... You know, he's, uh, his specialty is Semitic languages and, and Arabic. And his current word on pre-Islamic Arabic is just, it's fascinating. It's, it's, you know, he's breaking new grounds on it. It's just fascinating. So cool. Well, listen, Fadi, this was so much fun. If anyone hey. wants to find you on social media, um, they can find you at Sidrus K. So that's C-E-D-R-U-S-K. And yep. it's on Instagram, TikTok. Um, Twitter every, everywhere. Um, Fadi, so much fun to talk to you. I really thank you. appreciate it. Same here. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the work you're doing. I appreciate it. <laughs> I love much. your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do 
is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.